looks like having our best and most precious places protected. And as a community, what that means to me is, you know, I want to protect places that are special, that don't exist anywhere else in the world. This episode of All Land is Beautiful focuses on the American River Conservancy, or as you'll hear many times throughout, just simply ARC. I've alluded to working for land trusts in a number of the previous episodes without a whole lot of context, so this episode will provide some of that context. ARC also happens to be where I work, so the work being done here is near and dear to my heart. My first thought here is, Marshall, you're using the word land trust, so what's the difference between that and a conservancy, like where you work? And it's funny, because if you Google what's the difference between a land trust and a conservancy, most of the answers describe that those words can be used interchangeably to describe a nonprofit organization that protects land and habitats. But as usual, it's nuanced. In my experience, land trusts tend to have more of a focus on the acquiring or purchasing of land, while conservancies place a bit more emphasis on managing, enhancing, and restoring habitat. But that's not to say that there aren't land trusts who restore habitat or conservancies that acquire land. And you'll often find that it's the landscape or territory being covered that determines how a land trust or conservancy is operating. You can also throw in a whole other dynamic of protecting farmland, and that sometimes works its way into the mix as well. One thing, however, is certain, and that is that every organization working to quote-unquote protect land is doing it to keep open spaces open, wildlife corridors intact, restore ecosystems, manage habitat for wildlife, sometimes in conjunction with food production, sometimes just keep good farmland in production, and educate anyone and everyone about the importance of not developing or intensifying the use of land, whether that's through building houses, mining, or more intensive farming and or timber production. In California, we benefit from having 43 established land trusts and conservancies doing this great work, each with common goals, but with their own individualized focuses and success stories. I hope to tell as many of those stories as I can but why not first start close to home? So 2024 is ARC's 35th anniversary, a year in which the organization celebrates the protection of 30,000 acres of rivers, creeks, oak woodlands, and forests that typify the Upper American and Cosumnes River watersheds. I talk extensively with Executive Director Elena DeLacy to bring perspective on why this is important for both flora and fauna, AKA the critters, plants and trees, as well as human beings. We also take this opportunity to chat about and highlight one of ARC's legacy projects, El Dorado Ranch, as the organization embarks on the final effort to permanently protect 7,100 acres that will become El Dorado County's first state wildlife area. Make sure to take a look in the show notes for links mentioned during our conversation, especially if you're interested in my reference to another podcast, Stories from California Cattle Country, to learn more about the ranching history of El Dorado Ranch. So far, this is the the podcast episode I'm the most excited about because 
the reason I wanted to start doing this was to create a, a platform to celebrate land trusts and yeah. to provide a platform for getting the word out about work that's going on, projects, programs, because uh, within the community, you know, everyone does their best job to get the word out, but it's it's just hard because some of the things that land trusts do are not really, you can't really touch them, you can't see them, mm-hmm. and but that doesn't mean that they're not really important and also, I, I'm of course biased, but extremely interested, interesting as yeah. well. Yeah. So... The first thing, I, and I, uh, right, I think the so the intent of this podcast episode as well is for is sort of an introduction to ARC, to talk about uh, the fact that it's been around for thirty five years, and to talk about you know, the the big looming project that we're working on right now, which is the the final purchase phase of, of El Dorado Ranch, which we'll which we'll get into in detail later. But uh, I kind of wanted to just start with talking about uh, and ask you, what is a land trust? What, yeah. what do we do? Yeah, well, land trusts are basically um, community. They can be community-based uh, environmental nonprofit organizations, or they can be statewide or even nationwide, or in some cases even global organizations that really their goal is to protect and manage land and sometimes waters to ensure it's available for future generations. And Land trusts come in a variety of flavors and colors, and some of the goals may include um, protecting or conserving land for wildlife habitat. Uh, could include protecting land to ensure that we have agricultural spaces to grow food and also cultural resources protection. And there are even land trusts out there that are Um, kind of a newer thing, community land trusts that are in in that space to ensure that there's affordable housing in in certain communities. So I know that's not something we do, but I think that's another important niche that land trusts can fill. Awesome. And then there are, there's generally kind of two mechanisms that land trusts use to, to go about protecting land, right? Which would be the outright fee title purchase of a property or, or a conservation easement. Yeah. Uh, I think the, the, the first is pretty straightforward. It's buy land and protect it. But mm-hmm. uh, maybe if you could just give a, just a really broad uh, explanation of it, how, what is a conservation easement and how does, how does that work? Yeah, conservation easements, you can kind of think of land as a bundle of rights. So like a bundle of sticks where each stick is a different right to uh, use the land. And there can be uh, water rights. There could be rights to mine the land. There could be right to graze the land. And uh, what what a conservation easement does is it restricts the landowner's ability to exercise those rights, certain rights. So, for example, a conservation easement um, held by the land trust uh, most likely would restrict that landowner's ability to subdivide and develop the property for certain uh, uses. And uh, most of our conservation easements, that's their main uh, conservation tool, is restricting subdivision and development of the property so that it essentially stays in its current state 
um, and doesn't ever get developed for residential purposes um, and doesn't get further subdivided. And that's that's a, a threat sometimes to connectivity of wildlife habitat is partialization. And some of our conservation easements allow certain types of agriculture to continue happening. Some of them uh, limit different types of development. So you may have in the conservation easement language say that no new roads could be uh, constructed. So it's basically a legal mechanism that runs with the land and essentially is is something that is forever. And the land still is maintained as private, privately owned. And so subsequent owners are subject to that conservation easement. Those restrictions are, are maintained and monitored uh, throughout the years. And I think in the important thing to kind of close the loop on that is that uh, on the again talking about just purchasing land outright, which uh, is something that like ARC, specifically ARC has has done a lot of is the fact that obviously if the land is owned by a conservancy, then all the all those rights we're talking about mm-hmm. there's no there's no intent for the conservancy to ever subdivide or Correct. mine or give or sell water rights. So in the same sense, it's it's considered protected as well. Just yeah. kind of, right, two different ways to sort of skin the cat. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Well, great. And so you, you kind of alluded to it a little bit as far as in your first response to yeah, what a land trust is. And, and you know, personally, I've I've always felt like land trusts are, are snowflakes. Um, mm-hmm. You know, meaning that, right, the, the projects, the priorities, the focuses of each one is really dependent on the landscape that, mm-hmm. that it's operating on. Uh, the wildlife and the plant life that mm-hmm. occupy that land, that landscape, and the people who who are living on it, and right, and wh- where's the money? Where, where's what are the economic uses of of that land? Right, and again, just entirely depends on 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 where you're at. Sure. So, with kind of with that primer, uh, where where does American River Conservancy fit in? Well, I'm going to go back to our origin, and we became a land trust in 1989, and it was really as a result of a group of concerned citizens that saw a bunch of development happening in the South Fork American River watershed, really along the banks of the South Fork American River. These are people that were really intimately involved in recreational boating, on the South Fork, uh, avid hikers, outdoors people who really enjoyed having this little bit of wild California in their backyard. And there was a lot, you know, late 80s, early 90s, there's a huge housing boom. Um, Sacramento was expanding. I think there was a lot of exurban development and people were kind of flocking to the hills to build houses and have, you know, their their little 10-acre slice of paradise. Mm-hmm. And w- what what was happening was there was a lot of development that was maybe unpermitted and roads going in that weren't really the best, put in the best areas or maybe weren't, weren't engineered properly. And so there's a lot of erosion happening. And I think one of, that was what spurred the 
creation of American River Conservancy. And back then we were called American River Land Trust. Mm -hmm. And in 1994, we changed our name to American River Conservancy to really better, I think it, it is a better term for everything that we do um, in terms of not just the land conservation, but also the stewardship part, taking care of the land and the amount of education that we do and, and continue to kind of see as something that ties it all together. I think there's a lot of synergy between conservation, education, and stewardship, the kind of three pillars of our organization. And I think education is, is very important. And I'm not just talking education of children. We're talking about just essential connection to the land for people, I think is, is an extremely important thing. If we're going to be protecting land and taking care of it, we need to educate people about how they can participate in that. But also, you know, we, we don't want to own everybody's land. So, you know, educating people about how they can better take care of and steward their own land is also really important. And, so that's what our education department focuses on. And our stewardship department is really engaged in education as well in terms of educating volunteers and engaging volunteers in work days, building trail, doing water quality monitoring, you name it. And I, yeah, it's funny that this came up in the, the last episode and, then, and it was talked about in the episode prior to that and it, it will continue to be relevant was this was a uh, from Palio Alvarez from Audubon Conservation Ranching. Mm-hmm. He had brought up the term that I had not personally heard before, but was uh, fortress conservation, hmm. which was let's both literally and figuratively build walls and fences, you know, both legal metaphorical walls, as in you were not going to let anyone do anything to this landscape. And also we're not going to let anyone inside it. Mm-hmm. Um, and to who does that benefit? Because mm-hmm. people need to know, people need to know uh, about it and they need to understand it. And much, so much to your point of this in regards to educating, what's the point of doing it if, if we're not letting the people know and yeah. about, about all of this work? Well, that's really good. So, yeah, so I think to recap in it, you know, the, so the three pillars were conservation, which would be acquisition, more focused efforts, planning, mm-hmm. um, pl- planning in regards to where should we be focusing efforts mm-hmm. on and, and, and what should we be protecting. Uh, stewardship, which would be, oh, the, the actual boots on the ground efforts of, of habitat management, improvement, and yeah. kind of everything that might fall under there. Uh, and then we talked about education. And so I, I always get ahead of myself a little bit, but uh, the one thing I, it's always hard to like introduce the person that I'm talking to, but so I'm going to ask now. So who are you and what, what do you do in the conservancy? And, you know, give, sure. could you give a little background? Yeah. So my name is Elena DeLacy. I am the executive director of American River Conservancy. I am the second executive director of the organization in its history. I started with American River Conservancy in 2003. I was a project intern at the time, and I was still doing my undergrad at UC Davis in environmental biology and was really not sure what I wanted to do. And I, at that point in time, had no idea what a land trust even was. I was pretty young. I hadn't really had much experience. I thought maybe I would go into 
working with the state, you know, being a biologist, wildlife biologist. I was really excited about amphibians and reptiles and aquatic, uh, aquatic animals. And I happened to be living in El Dorado County at the time and was uh, just kind of stumbled onto American River Conservancy. And they were working on a project to protect and enhance habitat for California red-legged frogs in the Weber Creek watershed. And so I got started with that. I was very interested in frogs. I was doing a paper at the time for one of my classes on the red-legged frog. And so it just fit right in. It was There was serendipitous um, <laughs> occurrences happening that led me to American River Conservancy. And I helped basically design a pond for red-legged frogs and was a wonderful experience both being out in the field but also doing office work and talking to experts in the field about their experiences managing habitat for red-legged frog. So in about 2004, I applied for a permanent position or a full-time position with ARC, and I was hired on as a project. I think it was conservation project coordinator was my next role. And so I got to work with Alan Ergot, who was the Conservancy's exec- executive director at that point. He was the founding executive director and worked with him on conservation projects, so mapping, planning, writing grants, that sort of thing. And I also did a lot of the stewardship piece as well. So at that time, we didn't own as much land. We had conservation easements that I would go out and monitor, but maybe only three of them at the time. And so there wasn't a lot in terms of capacity needs for stewardship. Um, And as we grew and as time went on, that need got greater and we have more staff now that does that. But Essentially, I, I this is my backyard. It has been my backyard, you know, El Dorado County. I, I didn't grow up here, but I've been living here for 20 years, which I think that makes me sort of a local now. Close enough. <laughs> and, um, Some may not agree. but <laughs> Yeah, you know, I'll be a flatlander for the rest of my life, maybe. But, uh, you know, I, I did grow up in Sacramento. I went to high school in Sacramento and then went to UC Davis for college and, and came up here. And this is this is home. And now I'm raising my family here. So it's it's really rewarding to be able to do the work of protecting the watersheds that support me and my family. And I, I think it's, it's an honorable profession and um, something that I, I'm really... No bias. Yeah, no, no bias. But I think it's, it's something that um, I feel really fortunate to have... Um, stumbled across this little gem of an organization so early on in my uh, conservation career. Thank you for that. Uh, I want to this, I think also, as we sort of discussed, there'll sort of be this like zoom in, zoom out kind of dynamic as we talk through, Mm -hmm. talk through different topics. And so you'd actually, you'd kind of, you'd already, you mentioned the word watershed. Mm -hmm. Uh, And one thing I wanted to bring attention to was that uh, you know, now we're coming back more out organization-wise, you know, the larger American River Conservancy. And, and being that ARC's quote-unquote territory is determined by watersheds mm-hmm. and not arbitrary county-city mm-hmm. boundaries, right. uh, which is not, uh, it's not always the case with, with, with all land trusts. So I would appreciate if, yeah, why, why, why did ARC do it that way? 
Yeah, I think really it comes down to, so the the watersheds we work in are the Upper American River and Upper Cosumnes River watersheds. And I think the intent from the beginning was the reason behind taking a watershed approach is because political boundaries or county boundaries don't always um, jive with where you should be working on a on a biological scale and when you're talking about protecting water quality and wildlife habitat focusing on a watershed as a planning unit makes a lot more sense and so that's that's kind of I think the rationale behind why we focus on watersheds Um, it makes for a little bit of some complexity at times because you know we're working in Placer County sometimes and uh El Dorado County, and we don't really work in Amador County at all. But I think what what that allows us to do a little bit more of is is partner with our surrounding land trusts mm-hmm. to just communicate on a regular basis about, oh, hey, you know, do you guys want to take this project on, or, or what's your capacity like? And and I think we have a really great working relationship with all the surrounding land trusts in that respect. And there yeah. are enough projects to go around yeah. for sure. Yeah. And then also, and I think in, I don't know, it doesn't happen too often, but also join forces. And join forces. Right. If there's something really big that, mm-hmm. that d- deserves that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. And so, um, Half of El Dorado County and really our watersheds is is forest service land, mm-hmm. which is public land and mm-hmm. is thus in is you know protect you know uh, air quotes protected land. Yeah. So if half of the land is already protected, why why did ARC start, why did it start and you know what yeah where is it functioning and mm-hmm. you know what's the what's the niche. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so if you think of the Sierra as a as a bioregion, I guess, there's there's the the mountains and the the foothills. And then you have this kind of intergrade zone in between where it's thirty five hundred feet elevation where it starts to get into the zone where you have a lot more national forest. That's where we see more of the public land. And I think for American River Conservancy, the need and the threat that was was happening down in the lower elevations in the foothills in the late 80s, early 90s, and continues today, um, the development pressure is, is really in these oak woodlands in the foothills where people want to live. It's a beautiful place. We have... Uh, we both live here. We both live in the oak woodlands in the foothills, you know. People need places to live. There needs to be a balance. And so it's it's thinking about that balance and striking a balance is what prompted American River Conservancy to um, be doing the work that it does. And oak woodlands are a imp- really important habitat in California. Uh, the blue oaks, uh, which are a native species here in, in El Dorado County, um, we also have valley oaks. These are two species that are endemic to California. They don't exist anywhere else. And so they're, the, the oak woodlands are essentially biodiversity hotspots. That's what biologists call them because they support so many species of animals, plants, insects, fungi, you name it. Um, there's, there's just a lot going on, and they're really important in our state. 
not only for biodiversity, but also other ecosystem services like uh, water quality protection and recreation. That was, I think, one of the biggest reasons why American River Conservancy started its work on the South Fork American River is because they saw an opportunity to protect not only wildlife habitat in the river corridor, but also recreation closer to where people live. And as a result, we now have a 25 plus mile long trail network um, along the South Fork American River, Cronin Ranch, Magnolia Ranch, etc., that people, it's, it's a recreational mecca. So I think rather than having people, you know, go away to do their recreation, there was this vision to have recreation and wild spaces closer to where people lived and more accessible for people. And I think that that's a really, it was, it was a winning vision back then and it continues to be a, a winning vision. So then what I'm hearing is that pre- late 80s, early 90s, basically the western half of El Dorado County was private for the most part. And you for couldn't, the most part. there wasn't like a, a, a natural open space area that someone might be able to drive to in 15 minutes to 30 minutes from their home. No, there were little outposts, I think, of Bureau of Land Management land that were essentially holdovers from probably the late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, and the, the, the um, Homestead Act. Um, it, there were little 100 acres here or 200 acres here, but they weren't very well connected. And so I think our founders, and especially Alan Ergot, saw that as an opportunity to connect the dots in a way and create these migration corridors, protected migration corridors for wildlife that also could be networks of trails for people. Well, awesome. So then this is where I take the, this is where the opportunity comes up to do the, the bragging, the accolades of, <laughs> of ARC. Cause, um, so I think, so first and foremost, we want to, want to bring up that it is, um, 2024 is the Conservancy's, uh, 35th anniversary. Is there anything that you want to add there or pitch there on the 35th anniversary? We are approaching middle age. We're getting more mature. Uh, and you know, I think it's, it's an exciting time to be, uh, doing this kind of work in California, especially, and you know, 35 years, yeah, we, we're coming into our own. We're growing as an organization, and and it's it's a really wonderful time to be in conservation. Uh, and so, for the purpose of again of of boasting and bragging and, and celebrating, I did I threw together a list of you know uh, stats for the conservancy because I think it's um, I think. These are things that uh, a lot of people wouldn't know about because they, they happened so long ago and or we don't have a massive uh, billboard saying that ARC protected this land. So I just was going to kind of run off a list that, you know, so in the 35 years, ARC has successfully raised almost $93 million to close 90 land transactions and protect over 30,000 acres of land. That's a lot. That does sound like a lot. <laughs> um, the you know the the projects that stand out to me. You had already referenced a lot of the work along the South Fork American River, uh, which includes both Cronin and Magnolia Ranches, uh, Salmon Falls Ranch, and within that another twenty land transactions that make up eleven miles of unbroken protected river frontage, basically connecting from Cronin Ranch down to to uh, the Salmon Falls area, mm-hmm. uh, which yeah, and again uh, I guess. You would, my calculation was about 17 and a half miles of multi-use trails, but you said even more. Yeah, I think there's even more. 
yeah. and that uh, 25 was our last count because we've added additional sure. trails. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so in addition to that, uh, ARC has protected 10,000 acres of the headwaters of the North Fork American River, which included the largest donation of private land into wilderness since the passing of the Wilderness Act of 1964. So that would be 3,000 acres into the Granite Chief Wilderness. Yeah. A successful acquisition and protection of Wakamatsu Farm, which is the location of the first Japanese colony on North American soil and the burial site of the first Japanese individual, mm-hmm. you know, to be buried on in North American soil, and it's a state-registered historical site. The Kanaka Valley and Pine Hill Preserve projects, which was a 20-year effort between 10 federal, state, and local entities to permanently protect almost about 5,000 acres uh, containing gabbro soils, which uh, hold eight rare plant species in El Dorado County. Uh, and so from 1991 to 2010, ARC successfully secured about $27 million across 28 land transactions to, uh, to support that effort. Yeah. And then the last big one I had here, which is the one that I want, I want to dive into more and why we're talking today is the El Dorado Ranch Project, which is uh, about a 7,100 acre acquisition mm-hmm. that w- is slated to become the first state wildlife area in El Dorado County. Uh, and also, fun fact, it, w- it will be one of only four in the Sierra Nevada foothills. Oh. So that was a lot, but it's got to be said because it's great. <laughs> so as we, so again, so we zoomed in, I'm going to zoom back out for a second and ask the question. So we've, we've got a lot of context here, but when we look, when we talk about conservation of land, protection of land in, in California, and more specifically our region, Sierra Nevada's Central Alley, what does that, what does that look like? To, what, what are the priorities? Yeah. Why is that work happening? Well, I think you have to go back to the threats that, that are, we're experiencing in California, especially, and, and in these areas where it's relatively close to um, urban populations. There's there's a huge need to have buffers um, of land uh, along rivers, especially aquatic riparian ecosystems. That's very important to protect water quality, but also to protect movement corridors for wildlife. And so that's, I think, one of the biggest reasons why we're doing what we're doing. And that that was the case back in you know, when we first started, and it continues to be the case now, um, there's there's a lot of research that has been done on uh, wildlife movement patterns and connectivity and connectivity between habitats and connectivity between populations continues to be extremely important to maintain to maintaining biodiversity. And uh, the threat of uh, species extinction, right? And Another thing that we're dealing with in California and basically all over the world, but in California we have different issues and in the foothills in the Sierra Nevada we have different issues is climate change and the impacts of climate change. And here that looks like much more extreme weather patterns, uh, more precipitation falling as rain rather than snow and drought, uh, more enhanced and prolonged droughts and wildfire. So those are things that conservation of land can can help uh, to 
in some ways mitigate the impacts. I think probably the big keyword is, is buffer. And yeah, and buffer. And and really what it's doing is um, preserving the ability for these ecosystems to maintain their resilience in the face of extreme changes in climate and weather. And on top of all of that, people moving into the, these areas and changing the landscape and altering ecosystems that have really taken millions of years to adapt to this this very special climate um, that we have, the Mediterranean climate in California. So that's a huge reason why we, we are doing what we're doing. And that's what conservation is really focused on in California. And, and there's different ways to do that. You can do it by protecting wonderful, um, important habitats that might support endangered species, such as what we've done with Pine Hill Preserve. Or it could look like protecting agricultural lands, buffering farmland around these urban areas. So you have, you, you maintain these protected spaces that are, are still working landscapes. They're not untouched wildlands by any means, but, you know, it's important to have that, again, that balance between human-caused um, environmental degradation and sort of more... Um, sustainably managed lands that that can better protect water quality and biodiversity. Definitely, one major theme of of this podcast is to is that nuanced dynamic of uh, of land and how it's how it's been altered and how it's being managed, mm-hmm. and that it's not uh, it's not just a simple, straightforward answer every time. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in having having worked also in you know, more in the Sacramento, true Sacramento Valley. We get when we get you down. It's it's nuanced. Is you can look at a uh, could look at a at a, a field full of tomatoes or, or alfalfa, and um, yes, that is a that is a monocultured agricultural production. However, it's also uh, foraging habitat for the state threatened Swainson's hawk. Sure. So right, yeah. It's just these. There's so many different layers in there. Yeah, and you can also think of it as this this land um, use on on a scale of what its ability is to bounce back after it's been altered, right? Mm-hmm. So that field of alfalfa or that field of tomatoes, there's not a whole lot that has been done to the land to you know alter it in such a way that maybe maybe it'll take a few years, maybe it'll pay, take ten years to get it back to a state where it's maybe more natural there's going to be lasting impacts from weeds coming in and that sort of thing. But it's not the same type of degradation, say, as, you know, putting asphalt down and covering the soil and building a bunch of houses or, um, you know, strip malls, that sort of thing. So there's, there's sort of these, these levels of, of use and, and change on the landscape that you have to think about. And what, what is, how long is that, impact going to last is really important too. So I really appreciate it. I feel like I got the real, I got the really good uh, executive director of American River Conservancy answer to conser- what does conservation look like in California? <laughs> and so, but I, I wanted to ask the, yeah, what, what does conservation to uh, Elena DeLacy, you know, 20 year resident of El Dorado County who, who lives here and has raised a family here look like? I think it, it looks like having our, best and most precious places protected. And 
as a community, you know, what that means to me is, you know, I want to protect places that are special, that don't exist anywhere else in the world. And I want to make sure that my water source is protected, that we have clean water. And I also enjoy having spaces near my home that I can hike to. And, uh, you know, I can, I can go two or three minutes away from my house and be in a forest, maybe. Um, I actually have that near my home. I have Goldbug Park in Placerville, very close to my house, that I, I really value that space because it allows me to walk maybe a mile down the road and all of a sudden, hey, I'm in a forest with uh, moss on the side of the trees and everywhere I look are trees and green. And it's, I think that's really important for people to be able to experience that no matter where they are. And uh, so, yeah, I think it means having these these buffers um, for sure. I want to make sure that we have plenty of habitat for wildlife. I'm, I'm an animal lover. I, I love frogs and toads and all those creepy crawlies. And so that also, to me, means being very diligent about protecting our water and riparian areas. Well, great. Well, so then... Yeah, let's, we should uh, shift gears and really dive into the, the motivation to be doing this and is to talk about the El Dorado, the El Dorado Ranch Project. Mm-hmm. And so um, could you give me the elevator pitch on, on what, uh, what, what is El Dorado Ranch? We kind of, we alluded to it already, I guess I'll say, so it's a, it's about a 7,100 acre ranch that ARC is working to protect permanently and establish the first state wildlife area in the county. Yeah. And I'll let you take it from there. Yeah, that's a good intro. So yeah, it's it's on the Cosumnes River. It's it's in the Cosumnes uh, River watershed. Portions of the ranch uh, are right up against the main stem Cosumnes. And for um, those who may not know, this river system is relatively free flowing river system. In California, that's a rarity. Uh, there are no major dams on the Cosumnes River. There are some smaller diversion dams and uh, things that, that divert water to for, for different types of uses. But yeah, for the most part, it's a, it's a free-flowing river. And we have salmon, wild salmon that come up from the delta. And so it's important for us to be able to protect these areas. And the El Dorado Ranch was once slated for residential development. And we are currently working with the current owner who is a real estate developer to protect this this land because it represents not only uh, this amazing piece of land along the Cosumnes River, but also it's, if you look at Blue Oak Woodlands in, Cal- in El Dorado County, and they're, where they're situated, um, most it's it's like the largest intact um, single holding of Blue Oak Woodlands in in El Dorado County in terms of like north north south mm-hmm. connectivity, which is really important for many many reasons. It's important for uh, deer herds. They they use oak woodlands for forage in the winter especially um it's important for other game species like turkey and quail 
it's also very important for mountain lion and bear and all these these species we think of as maybe more common species in the foothills but they're they're what forms the basis of our food web and not to mention all the insects and the songbirds and everything else in between and, and the diversity of plants so el dorado ranch is important extremely important for habitat values but also um, as a working landscape it is a working ranch it has been a working ranch probably since the late 1800s as far as we know mm-hmm. and um you know that's that's an important part of our our collective history and the rural character of this region um, I think it's important to preserve that. And these these ranchers, the, the Nielsen family actually um, has been ranching out here probably for 50 plus years. They've been leasing the land for grazing and their homestead is right up adjacent to El Dorado Ranch. So they know this property very well and they've been wonderful stewards of it. And it's important to recognize and honor that, that long-term stewardship. And while grazing has its impacts for sure, and there's there's a lot of, I mean, we could go into a long, much a very long podcast about the benefits and. Well, that's that's why I started. <laughs> there's already been a few podcasts. And the benefits and the impacts of grazing, right? right? But um, again, again, nuanced. Very nuanced. It depends on where you are. Depends on the type of grazing that's happening. But what we've seen at El Dorado Ranch and in many of the other ranches we, we manage is that um, grazing can, can really enhance some of the habitat values and also um, provide a service for you know, reducing fuels and um, reducing some types of invasive species. So it's, it's a, in terms of the cost-benefit analysis, I think the, the benefits outweigh the costs for mm-hmm. sure jumped ahead a little bit in my notes here, but uh, people are interested enough. There was a another separate podcast done with speaking to Tim Nielsen, yes. the yeah. current uh, ranching lessee. And so I will, that, that'll be a, a pitch for the California Cattle Country, or Stories from California Cattle Country podcast, which uh, we'll include, I'll include a link to if, if people are interested yeah. in learning. And I will say it's, um, and just a uh, Listening to it again briefly prior to this, that that the Nielsen family has has quite a history on that on that property, and actually, all the I guess the one little uh, spoiler I'll I'll have for it is that they so they did they came in they they came in the gold rush period, and yeah. but interestingly they did not come here to for gold they came to to ranch to ranch yeah so uh, and so I think I think now Tim is the fifth generation. Mm-hmm out there so it's always i mean i mean i think when you look at it uh, throughout our state there are there's a there's a lot of rich ranching family history you know mm-hmm. i mean that that story isn't isn't completely unique no. but again when we i think when we talk about we talk about nuances and we talk about I mean, the state does not look the same drop a pin and it's not going to be the same and mm-hmm. the the family stories and then also the the management and all the dynamics of, that have gone into to stewarding that land is it's going to be different so everyone does have a does definitely have an interesting and unique story yeah. okay so that's i think a great primer to el dorado ranch i wanted to back up though uh a timeline wise because uh the one thing we also need to discuss 
is the fact that this is uh, it's ancestral lands. Yeah. And so I appreciate, I know, so we have, ARC has an existing relationship with uh, El Dorado Miwok Band of Indians yeah. through the, the Casonas Cultures and Waterways nonprofit. And uh, I think I, I would actually, I would, I would love to be able to do a whole other con podcast just to talk about the history there because, I mean, mm-hmm. neither of us are, are experts. Yeah. Um, but if you could, I, I think you could probably give sort of a, a, a brief overview of, sure. of what, yeah, what, what that history looks like there. Yeah, well, just broadly speaking, the land that we, we do conservation in and on is, is, are the ancestral homelands of both the Miwok people and the Nisanan people. And it's, it's important to recognize that because um, they have been here for thousands of years and they continue to be here and their culture is very much alive today. And we are happy and pleased to be working with um, many different tribes um, to advance conservation projects, but also advanced, um, advance traditional ways of managing the land. So introducing, reintroducing prescribed fire on the landscape, uh, working with um, different tribes to uh, do resource uh, kind of native tribal um, tending uh, of the land and using these techniques to enhance their tribal cultural knowledge and, sh- you know, allowing them to use lands to share that knowledge with their tribe and other people as, as they see fit. And I think at El Dorado Ranch, that is firmly, I think, definitely part of the Miwok um, people's uh, ancestral homelands. And we have been, um, we've consulted with both Shingle Springs Band of Miwok Indians, as well as United Auburn Indian Community and El Dorado Miwok band of Indians to um, just kind of bring it forward to them as, you know, this is an area that we know is important to you culturally and spiritually, and we want your input on and how it's managed. And in California, cultural resources not only includes physical, you know, remnants of, mm-hmm. of tribes from the past, you know, such as bedrock mortars and other other artifacts that are found on the land but but also cultural resources is has been expanded that that definition has been expanded to include resources like oak trees and different types of native plants that are important for native food and medicine and in basketry so it's incredibly important and integral if we're going to be successful at doing land conservation in california in the 20th 21st century mm-hmm. that we involve tribes in that process both planning and also managing lands so then let's come back let's circle back to the proposed development dynamic because i think that's when we talk about uh what's well we've already talked uh, a few times about the the threat of of development of sub of subdivision in our region but i think that that can yeah, well, that's that's pretty high level. So I did want to take the opportunity here to just briefly, die, you know, we to give a little bit more context to why, what was the actual threat to El Dorado Ranch? Mm-hmm. All right. So, so kind of in, in preparation for this, I'd, I'd looked up. So this was in this was the the Cinnabar subdivision that was kind of the the main push there was in the 80s and 80s and 90s. That that full the full footprint of that development was about 7800 acres. Mm-hmm. 
and was going to include 566 residential lots with 2,900 acres of open space, mm-hmm. kind of in sort of to be a, uh, oh, a rural equestrian refuge. When we look at uh, acreage on that scale and talk about the, the effects of, um, I mean, we're not talking about, you know, cookie cutter, little teeny sized home lots out there. But even still, when we put when we put houses out and we put fences, mm-hmm. we're, you're completely negating all of the the, the habitat mm-hmm. and uh, uh, ecological uh, services you know benefits there because you're you're removing all of the the natural dynamics yeah. of it right so I did I just again just to kind of pro- provide context it was it was a really interesting one and I, I think it not not a story completely unique uh, because you take a look at places all over the, our country and you'll have instances where uh, a developer was kind of was using the mass amount of resources they had available in order to push mm-hmm. a certain initiative. Mm-hmm. And so I thought it was just, it was really interesting in looking at this specific development that uh, in that period in the 80s and 90s, uh, El Dorado County was actually going through a general plan update. Mm-hmm. And so with that, meaning that they're kind of recategorizing what, how the county is zoned and, and what people can and can't do. Uh, right. How? What's the minimum size that uh, a piece of land can be cut up? How many pieces can a piece of land get cut up to, depending on where it is yeah. in the county? And the developer kind of was taking that uh, that opportunity to to sneak this in, mm-hmm. really. And uh, sort of the mechanism that they they uh, utilized was this concept of a, of a floating low density residential area which was a, a really sneaky way of basically kind of keeping the property earmarked to be able to, to build houses with wherever within the footprint of that property that they wanted to, you know, not taking into consideration vicinity to uh, other, you know, to, to community centers, to, to roads, to, to existing infrastructure. And so the, the residents that, the existing residents that lived out there went to court and basically presented that argument and at first they lost mm-hmm. which is scary yeah but fortunately enough and I mean I don't know enough details but obviously they weren't satisfied and they they still felt that they had a good enough case to to retry it and and then when it was revisited it was the the ruling was reversed yeah. and so the the development was stopped and so then from there I guess so so now we know okay so there's a little bit of context. So the, the development stops uh, in the 90s and then it exchange ha- exchanges hands. I'm not sure how many times, but it gets into the hands of who we're, who we're working with now, right? Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if, can you provide maybe a little bit more context as to how did, how did it start? How did, how did ARCs, mm-hmm. how did this project start with, with, with the current? Landowner? Sure. I'll do the best I can because yeah. I obviously I wasn't the person back then in 2012 working with the landowner. But as I understand it, um, so the current landowner is Angelo Sakopoulos and his his holdings. And uh, many people may recognize that name. He's a pretty prominent real estate developer in, in Central California. And ARC started working with him, I think, around 2011, 2012, maybe even earlier than that, 2010, just kind of uh, gauging interest in conservation along the Cosumnes River. This, this area had always been something we were looking at, 
to protect. And we pulled in all of these different partners, Wildlife Conservation Board and also California Department of Fish and Wildlife, because we had identified these areas collectively as as important for maintaining the integrity of the Cosumnes River watershed in terms of ecological integrity. So we we approached Angelo Sakopoulos and his representatives, and, and I think it probably went down something like, you know, we're in the business of protecting land for conservation. We want to work with you. Are you open to talking with us? And obviously he was. I think part of that conversation probably involved you know, talk about how much the land would be valued and and what that process would look like in terms of negotiating a um, purchase and sale price. And that involves lots of appraisals and and also most of the funding. I think we haven't really talked about funding mm-hmm. yet, but uh, most Don't of the <laughs> most of the funding we get for land conservation comes from, you know, public, grants, um, either state or federal grant funding sources. We do raise funds from the community as well to supplement those those funds, but the vast majority comes from grants, competitive grants that we apply for. So, you know, that we have to take into account all these timing issues and restrictions on how we can use those funds, etc. But he was willing to work with us. He was willing to stay the course and long plan with us long term for how we could get this property acquired and protected, which I, I, I am super grateful for. And I think, you know, he didn't have to work with us. And I, I think he saw the value perhaps in land conservation at, at a time where maybe real estate development in the county was and, and continues to be maybe a little bit more expensive than it has been in the past. And that may not be the case in the future, however. We don't know what the real estate development landscape will look like in 50 years or 100 years. And so that is the timescale we're working on, and even longer than that, right? Who knows what will happen? If, if, if anybody's familiar with the area, you know what's happening south of 50 in Folsom. Huge, massive development going on right now. Years. 500 acres of residential and uh, commercial development. Um, There are new schools going in. There's new shopping centers and all kinds of roads and housing developments going in. And, you know, all of that requires space and it requires water. And water is something we, you know, we don't have an endless supply of in California. And so... It's not just the space and the actual habitat that's, you know, degraded. It's also where is that water going to come from? Is it going to come from groundwater sources? Is it going to come from surface water sources? And who's who's going to pay for it? And who's going to pay for it to be conveyed to that that spot for people to turn on their faucets and drink it, or God forbid, water their lawns? No. <laughs> well, right, and I think and that's important because uh, all of us expect when we turn our faucet on water to come out yes <laughs> right yeah yeah and so it's extremely critical it is and and a lot of a lot of the water for um, these rural developments in in El Dorado County and I think in other counties too it, it ends up having to be groundwater and we know from the past with the drought that groundwater is not a sure thing there's we have in El Dorado County mostly fractured rock aqu- aquifers and it's 
one person can have a wonderful well that runs, let's say, 80 gallons per minute, and they've got lots of water, and then their neighbor right next door could have two gallons per minute, and that's just the nature of groundwater up here in the foothills. Um, And, you know, that's not a way, that's not a very good way to plan development, especially in areas where you have this huge threat of wildfire. And if you can't get emergency services or uh, a fire truck or have uh, fire hydrants in your neighborhood, then you're probably not going to get homeowner's insurance. You're certainly not going to get fire insurance in California. So these are things that we have to think about more and more now. And our counties, our, our planning departments are going to have to think about more and more, hopefully. And where, where does it make sense to have development? Because we're going to have to build more houses for people. It's just being very smart and strategic about where that's happening. And yeah, so... Well, so then let's pull it back um, to the uh, to the purchasing of of the of the ranch because you you alluded to the fact. I mean, yeah. So now Angelo Sokopoulos has been on board for over ten years in the pursuit of mm-hmm. of the protection of this, and so it's a phased approach of acquiring, right? So um, give me a little give me a little bit more history on or yeah, sure. how, how has that all worked out? Yeah, we decided to approach this in phases from the beginning and up until now we've worked on basically a thousand acre chunks and that has served us well i think it's a little bit easier to stomach say raising four and a half or five million dollars than you know 25 or 30 million dollars and we can get things done a little bit quicker and um, there's not as much at stake um, if you take a phased approach to this point, he and his his company have been willing to work with us and be patient as we as we do that. I think for this final fifth phase, one of the things that I think is pushing our our need to kind of work on a larger phase is is uncertainty with funding and timing and wanting to just get get this project done, push it through and it's ambitious, yes, but I think it can be done. I think there's the will and the support from uh, the state level to see this project through. And I think it's a, a good time to barrel on through and raise $14 million to to protect the final 3,000 acres. And I think, obviously, I think AKT or Angelo Sokopoulos, his, his company and, and Angela himself are probably very happy to work with us on the last phase as one final phase because it means that we can get it done sooner. And we've been working on this for, gosh, going on 12 years now. So it's time. I think people have been hearing about it and and want to see want to see it open to the public. And I think, yeah, we owe that to everybody. And so, yeah, you alluded to it that it has the um, has the support of the state behind it. And mm-hmm. so, this is a story that's been told for for over a decade now. But I, and I'd mentioned it. This is going to be the first state wildlife area. So, if you could please, yeah, what 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 is that state support? And uh, you, I, you we alluded to that it's the it's the state department of fish and wildlife mm-hmm. that's that's supporting this project. And so, yeah, yeah. what is that gonna what's it gonna look like? Yeah, so state department of fish and wildlife used to be called fish and game, but their their agency is the the statewide agency that's in charge of managing the state's wildlife, and they also manage wildlife areas in California. I 
don't know how many wildlife areas there are. There's a map, and there's a good number of them. Yeah. But, but like I mentioned, there are only, this will be the fourth in the Sierra Nevada foothills. Yeah. And it's also the southern, it will be the southernmost. Oh. So everything else is kind of more um, Butte County and, and so further. Farther up yeah. north. Okay. Yeah. So, so what that means is uh, the state would manage it uh, for wildlife-related recreation. That includes everything from hiking to fishing, um, but also including hunting. And so it, it provides this way for the public to access an area that they've never accessed before. And it's relatively close to Sacramento. I mean, it's only 45 minutes east of Sacramento. And I think that's really important because it's not in the back country. It's in the front country. And uh, so state support from, from CDFW, and we also have considerable amount of support from the Wildlife Conservation Board, which is also another state agency. They're, they're primarily focused on protecting and restoring the state's wildlife habitat, and um, they have been a supporter of this project from the very beginning. Um, they have contributed funding to every single phase so, so far. And we also have gotten lots of support from the California Natural Resources Agency through various grant programs and bonds, uh, River Parkways Grant, um, Environmental Enhancement and Mitigation Grant Program. And also Sierra Nevada Conservancy has been a huge supporter of this project and contributing to purchase funding for the last phase. And uh, there's there's others. Eldorado County has actually provided funding in the past from their Oak Woodland Management or Mitigation Fund, and we've used that for purchase purchasing portions of the property. And uh, you know, California Oak Foundation, which is also the California Wildlife Foundation, they've provided funding as well. So, a lot of local and state statewide support. We're hoping to attract some additional support, maybe from the, the federal side of things, because there there is habitat here for some special status, threatened and endangered species. And just all around, this is this is a winning project. And I think people really see that it, it's it's important. So they throw their support behind it. I don't think it has, really has any any detractors at this point. Knock on wood. <laughs> if you don't like oak trees. I guess if you don't like oak trees and you don't like rivers, rivers maybe maybe you would be a, uh, not a supporter. Yeah. yeah. Well, cool. So then I guess then just to maybe close the loop on El Dorado Ranches, this is, uh, so what's the, what's the final pitch on, uh, you know, if people want to stay inter- or interested, they want to stay tuned in on to how things are going, uh, ways to experience yeah. The ranch? Yeah. The, well, the best way is to go to our website, which is arconservancy.org. You can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook at arconservancy. And you can also go to our website. The best way to kind of keep track of what's going on is to sign up for our eStreams, which is a weekly newsletter that goes to our email inbox. And in it, we, we provide weekly updates about hikes and programs and events and things that we've got going on. We are planning on having some hikes this spring that will be limited in terms of how many people we invite. Um, But one sure way to get on the invite list is to donate. Donate to the projects because those are the people that get the first invites to go out and actually see the land and walk on it. And 
we'll be, I think we'll be doing four hikes, about four miles each, each day. It's in the springtime. And I can tell you springtime is the best time to Mm -hmm. visit this property because we have loads of wildflowers. It's green, it's beautiful, the birds are out. And so not to be missed. And those hikes will be led by myself and also Marshall here, (laughs) and as well as some of our other staff. And um, so our initial fundraising push and our fundraising goal is for $50,000. We need to raise that. And the reason why we, we are, you know, we do enjoy a lot of support from state funding agencies as well as federal funding in terms of competitive grants, but we can't do it all with those grants. Those grants typically, for the most part, pay for purchase funding and don't always pay for staff costs. Mm-hmm. They they definitely, we can't pay for keeping the lights on and all the costs of doing business as an organization mm-hmm. with those grant funds. So we really do need people's support to, to do all those things and to pay the professional um, dedicated staff that we have to keep these projects going. And, um, you know, we have appraisals that cost a lot of money that need to be done. We have all kinds of environmental assessments and title review and things like that that aren't necessarily covered by grant funding. So we, we have to crowdsource and get our community to support these projects. Yeah, I would say if you've, right, if you've gone through the experience of buying a house, you're like, do I really I need to write another check for that thing that I didn't know that yeah. I needed? Yeah. And then take right now, take that and <laughs> throw another, throw 71 or not, oh, and then throw 3,000 acres on top of it, right? There's there's a little, there's a few more things that go into it. Yeah. yeah. Economy of scale. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, awesome. Well, I've enjoyed closing these with a question lightning round of questions that you haven't been provided, um, <laughs> but they're supposed to be really fun and lighthearted. So uh, this can be, you can answer as briefly or as extensively as you want, but they are supposed to be from the gut and just for what Boy. what you care about. So okay. uh, what's your favorite bird and why? Oh my gosh, these are hard questions, Marshall. Okay, well right now my favorite bird is the California quail. Okay. Yeah. Uh, because it's cute? Um, I think that's part of it. I really think quail are beautiful birds, um, but they also are just this iconic symbol of California to me. They're incredibly awesome. And when you learn, I think when you learn more about the the family unit, yeah, yeah. there's a lot going on there than meets the eye. Totally. Yeah. yeah. This one might be the hardest one. Uh, what's your favorite reptile slash amphibian? Oh, actually, this is not. not a hard one for me because... The California red-legged frog will always have my heart, and it is a beautiful species. It's it's one of the reasons why I got into land conservation, and so it's your origin story. It's my origin story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's 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 also our state amphibian, which is weird because the California quail is our state bird too. So. Oh, yeah. I'm, right. I'm just picking. Jeez, you're not. Uh, be more original. I know. I'm just, <laughs> that's a cliche. Actually, I should say, but that would probably actually argue that, that there's a reason why those are mm-hmm. the state bird and the state uh, amphibian. Yeah. yeah. Um, what's your favorite native mammal and why? Ooh, my favorite native mammal. Now this one, ugh, I'm running through all these different mammals, but I, I think it's going to have to be the bob- bobcat. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, mostly because I had a really amazing experience with a bobcat when I was doing I think I was working I was out 
looking at a property that a landowner wanted wanted to sell to us and was I think I was GPSing the stream course mm-hmm. to to map it and I was really not paying attention to what was going on and then all of a sudden I kind of we locked eyes mm-hmm. me and this bobcat and stared at each other what seemed for what seemed like a really long time but was probably sure. only about 5 seconds but it was just beautiful yeah. their eyes are amazing what's your favorite plant shrub or tree i would have to say the blue oak yeah. is just iconic just something that like when when i go somewhere that doesn't have oak trees i i come back to california and i'm just like oh i'm home it's it's sort of the symbol of home to me what is your favorite underappreciated open space or preserved land Mm. I'm going to have to, I mentioned it earlier, Goldbug Park yeah. in Placerville of all places. You know, I think, I think it's, um, I was just, I, I took a hike there yesterday and there was hardly anybody there. So I'm, I'm not, I don't want everybody to like go hiking there now, but. It's I, kind of the worst question to ask. I know, this, geez, We're talking about this kind of stuff, <laughs> but. It's, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's certainly not the most beautiful place and, and, you know, it's not, uh, hasn't, it's not untouched or, you know, primeval. It's definitely been um, impacted for many, many years through mining, you mm-hmm. know, and the, the, the scars of that can be seen on the landscape. Um, but it, it, it is now a place where people can go hike and learn about mining history. I like it because it's so close to my house and it's just this really quiet little place. I, I go there sometimes to play music. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. And so in closing, in what or where do you find hope? Oh, I, I think I find hope in, one, my children in the future generation and knowing that they will carry on this this ethic of love of the land and love of water and love of natural spaces. But I also find hope in my community of people that I engage with on a day-to-day basis. And that extends from the staff here to people um, I consider my friends and, and chosen family, as well as my family family. But it's people, you know, they, they do give me hope. Uh, it's, I know it's that, that maybe it depends on the day that I'm asking depends this question. on the day that you're asking <laughs> some people more than others give me hope. Right. But, um, yeah, I, I think that there, there is the huge capacity in the human species for doing beautiful things and doing amazing things there while there's also the capacity for great destruction and, horrible, awful things. And I guess that inherent duality or non-duality, however you want to look at it, is is a part of the the human condition. But yeah, sorry not to, not to get super well, abstract yeah, and, and spiritual well, here. And philosophical. But, philosophical. But, hey. Um but yeah, I think I think that's that's really what it's all what it comes down to is that, you know, we as humans have a choice about what we do and how we how we perceive life and how we perceive our place within it. That's how the future will play out. 
And um, hopefully there's more people that see the beauty and the wonder and the enchantment than, awesome. than do not. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, that's all I got for you, Elena. So thank you so much for taking the time. And uh, this is the end. All right. Hey, guys, it's Marshall. You may or may not have noticed a different intro song this time around. Shout out to my pops for taking it upon himself to write a custom song for his son's budding podcast. It really means a lot. And thanks so much to you, the listener, for sticking around to the end. I appreciate that you're interested in something that interests me and that I'm passionate about. If you enjoy what you're hearing and want it to continue, please take a moment to rate the podcast or share with a friend. And I'll see you in the next episode.